There's a prayer that Paul offers, and it's my favorite prayer. I pray it almost every day over myself, over my fam- our family, my wife, our family, and even o- and over you. So be ready. <laughs> I've been praying this over you for some time. And it is in Ephesians chapter 3. You don't need to turn there, but it's Paul prayers, prays that, that God would strengthen us by his spirit in our inner man so that Christ could be formed in us by faith, that being rooted and grounded in love, we would come to know together with all the saints the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that passes our natural human understanding so that we may be filled to all the fullness of him. And then as awesome as that appears to be, the next verse says, Now unto him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. And so that verse that we're so used to talking about, that God will do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we can think or ask, it it applies to all the promises of God. But the specific one that Paul ties that to is the promise that God will reveal to us the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that passes understanding. God wants you to know his love for you more than anything else. Because it all begins and ends with that, and that's what we're beginning to look at. We saw a few weeks ago that the culmination of the end, the focus of all that we've been studying most of the year out of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, is the body of Christ. We've talked about the body of Christ and the parts that we are, and we are together. And we've seen that, that each of us is to take our place and to do our function, to perform what we're called to do. And that's where the fulfillment and satisfaction in life comes. But it ends in verse 16 by saying that, that so that causing the building up of the body of itself in love. And we've talked about why not something else? Why not something else important? Why love? Why not faith? Why not righteousness? Why not holiness? All those things are very important. We've talked about those things before, but the key, and I was just meditating over this this morning, what came back to me again, the key, the, the, the key and the foundation for, for what we're looking at, and really the key and foundation for your life is to understand this about God. It's in 1 Corinthians, 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, and then again in verse 16. Verse 16, and it's these words, God is love. See, we really still don't have it yet. Because we hear that in terms of God loves. And he does. God loves a lot. And he does. God loves more than anyone else. And that's true. But we'll miss it if that's our understanding. But when you understand what the Word of God says, God is love. That is His nature. That is what and who He is, which is why He can love you and me the way He loves us. And so that is the basis for understanding. And then we've, we looked in John chapter 13, and we saw Jesus takes all the Old Testament commandments and boils them down to one. They had ten commandments God gave Moses on Mount Sinai, and then the Pharisees expanded that in, in, into about 626 or something like that. Commandments that they had to remember and faithfully carry out. Of course, you can't do that. But Jesus boiled it out down to one. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another. Well, that's good. You know, we come in here in church and we say, I love you. You know, greet everybody. says, oh, it's good to see you. I love you this morning. But he went on to define what he means by love. 
And he defined it this way. He didn't define it as a concept. He didn't define it as a theological principle. He defined it by what he did. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another the way I've loved you. And that's the love that Ephesians 4.16 is talking about, the building up of the body of itself in love. Why? Because God is love. And we looked at the fact, that's why 1 Corinthians 13, in fact, you may want to turn there. 1 Corinthians 13 says that if I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, but have not love, it's a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have, love, I have not love, I am nothing. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. It profits me. In other words, with God, love is everything. And now we began to understand why that's true, because I can do all these good things, but if I'm not doing them out of love, I'm not communicating God, because God is love. I explained to you last week, it's like taking a shower and hoping that somehow you're going to take the shower and not get wet. I mean, that's ridiculous, isn't it? Why? Because we understand water, that water just is wet. So the idea that you could separate the wet from the water, we laugh at it. But that's the same thing we try to do when we separate love from God. Well, I'm serving God, but I'm going to get that so-and-so. You don't know what they did to me. You cannot do that. We're going to see, not today, but you're going to see, we're going to see, you know, maybe next week, that, that if we say that, if we say, look, I love God, but I, uh, I can't wait to get back at Michael. He says, then you're a liar. The word of God doesn't mince words. He says, then he says, if you say that you love God, but you hate your brother, and we'll see what the definition of hate is. It isn't seething with your teeth clenched, I can't wait to kill them. It's holding something against them. It says, if you're doing that and say you love God, now I didn't say this. The Bible says this. You're a liar. Why? Because you cannot have God and not have the love that goes with Him. You cannot serve God and not walk in love because to serve God is to serve love because God is love. So let's look at what this, we're looking at what this love is like. And in this next few verses gives you kind of a functional definition. This tells you what it looks like when you see it. Verse 4, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Love is not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely or unmannerly. It does not, this is the essence, it does not seek its own. Remember we looked the first day we were studying this? I think it was the second day we were studying this. We went back and we looked at, at the contrast to that, which was Satan, who started out as Lucifer, and we went back and looked in Ezekiel 28 and, and Isaiah 14, and we saw that this was the most beautiful creation God ever made. And what happened is he began to look at himself, and he began to become lifted up in pride and began to think because of that he had his own rights, and as a result he rebelled against God. And the root of it is he started to look at himself. And the root of all sin is self. 
And that's the very opposite of this kind of love. Because if you look through what Paul's describing here, self has nothing to do with it. Love suffers long. Well, self doesn't suffer long. Self wants what it's entitled to. Love is kind. Love does not envy. What is envy? I want what somebody else has. I want it because I think I'm entitled to it. It's focused on me. Love does not parade itself. What's parading itself? It's, it's being puffed up. It's saying, hey, look, I'm somebody special, which is what we saw Lucifer did. Love doesn't do that. When Jesus came to this earth, he didn't do that, did he? Could he have? Oh, yeah. Would he be entitled to? Oh, yeah. But did he? No. In fact, there was a day when somebody came to him and says, good master is about to say something, and Jesus stopped him and says, no, you need to understand this. There's no one ultimately good but my Father. In other words, the goodness you see in me comes from him. So Jesus, even, see, Jesus was the humblest man that's ever lived on the earth. But he was, would have been entitled to have been the proudest. But he gave that up. We saw that in Philippians chapter 2. He emptied himself of his privileges and of his rights and of his prestige and of his glory and of his honor. He emptied himself. He did that to himself. He did that so that he could come to this earth and have you. That's what this love is like. God's love is like. And that's why it acts this way. Verse 5, it does not behave rudely. It does not, that's including on the highway. See, we don't leave our Christianity at the door and then pick it up Wednesday night and then leave it here Wednesday night. We better move on. It does not seek its own. And because it does not seek its own, it's not provoked. You know the only things that provoke you are things that affect you. That's what provokes you. It is not provoked. It thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. I was reading um, a book I'm reading on love and and, uh, talked in there about a a couple that was about to kill each other. (laughs) I mean, they were were about to, to, to split up. And this minister that wrote the book says, here's what I want you to do. He says, I want you to get up every morning And the first thing you do is I want you to read this together out loud. And then come back, I think it was in a month, and see me. And and, and, Because they had said, look, I don't love love her anymore. I don't love him. I can't stand being with him, da-da-da-da. And they read this together every morning for a month. And when they came back to see him in a month, they were head over heels in love with each other. See, we look for so many other answers, but God's Word, if we just do... What God says to do. This is the manual for life. There are so many books out there, and there are many of them are good, but you know, this is the manual. Just do it. Pastor Sam, the founding pastor of the church, had such a simple principle. He says, do it, it works. Don't do it, it won't work. It's that simple. And it really is. So many things we complicate, and the reason we complicate them is that for as long as, long as they're complicated, I don't have to do it. But Jesus was very clear and simple. This is my commandment. All right, let's go. We, we were, last week we were over in Matthew 5, so go over there quickly. 
And we'll take a look there just to kind of get us all back into what we're talking about here. Matthew chapter 5. Verse 38. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now what's that? That's looking out for yourself. Somebody hurts me, I'm going to hurt them back. Somebody says something about me, I'm going to, because there's causes pain. Look, when somebody does something against you, it causes pain. It causes pain. It hurts. And our human instinct is to hurt back. Because somehow if I hurt you back, that makes my pain a little better. Well, it really doesn't. Because now that person has to hurt you back. And you start this hurt cycle. Back and forth and back and forth. And about what you did to me. No, you did to me. And after a while, you know, there are grudges out there and people don't remember who started it or even what it was started over. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. That doesn't mean open your doors and let thieves in. He's talking about this principle of protecting myself. This is what he's talking about here. He's talking about, I've got to stand up for myself. I've got to assert myself. And if somebody does something, then I got to, it's, how does it affect me? That's what he's talking about. How does what happened affect me? I told you in the beginning of the study, when you, when you get bent out of shape over something, that's because there's a part of your flesh sticking out. Somebody could get a hold, the devil could get a hold of. Because if somebody does something and it gets you ripping mad, that there's your, that's your flesh sticking out. Because it said about Jesus, the devil could find no place in him. The devil could find nothing to get a hold of because there was no selfishness in him. Because he walked in this love he's commanded us to walk in. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. Again, he's talking about this attitude of staying vulnerable. Just when somebody hurts you, you don't, you don't withdraw yourself, close yourself off, and run away. You stay vulnerable to them. Love them. Love will, see, love continues to love even if they slap you in the face. Verse 40, if someone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, then let him have your cloak also. He doesn't say, okay. Verse 41, whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks from you. From him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who... It's getting worse. Each level is getting worse. Pray for those who spitefully use you. It's one thing to have somebody use you. It's another thing when they do it intentionally. And it's another, even worse, when they spitefully... I mean, they've intentionally singled you out to take advantage of you just to be spiteful. <sighs> you know what bothers us about this? It's wrong. It's wrong. Because he's saying these people ought to be able to get away with it. But you don't understand what they said about me. And I know, I don't take it personally but they said this, about they're going to get away with this. And there is just something in our human nature that wants to see somebody get what they're entitled to, except when it's me. One of the evidences of that is that the, what we tend to do is we tend to deal with other people 
on the basis of what they deserve. And we deal with ourselves based on our intentions. I know I didn't, I know I didn't know it was right, but I, I didn't intend to hurt anybody. I know I let my mouth run loose and said that, but I really didn't mean to hurt you. And yet if somebody does that back to me, do I go find out what their intention was or I just say, but they said it, they did it, it hurt. This just looks wrong. But, but God, they're going to get away with something. Well, we're going to see in a minute. But here's what his point is. Verse 45 that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For He makes the sun to shine on the evil and the good. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. What He's saying is because you're a child of God, because you've got His nature in you, act like your Father. Because this is what He's done. He's turned the other cheek. When we rejected Him, when we did things to Him, when we used His name in vain, when we simply disobeyed Him, it's as if we slapped Him in the face. What if He, what if He did this? What if He said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? So whatever we did against Him, He got back at us for. Wouldn't take long, would it? What if we resisted Him and He resisted us back? What if we decided to sue him? Job wanted to do that. And he decided to take us to court for what we did wrong. Well, I, I, I don't want to spend all that time there. All right, you get the point. Look at verse 46. For if you only love those who love you, what reward have you? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet your brethren only, what do you more, do more than the others? Don't even the Gentiles, or some translations say the tax collectors do the same? By the way, to a Jew in this day, a tax collector was the lowest scum of the earth to them. Because what a tax collector was, is he was one of their Jewish brethren who'd sold out to the Romans. And the way the Romans worked is they would designate you, they would offer you to be a tax collector, and what they would say is you can collect from your people whatever you want. Here's what you've got to owe to us, but you're authorized to collect whatever you can get out of them. So they made their livelihood by overcharging on the taxes, their own brethren, for the Romans. So they were despised and hated. So when Jesus chooses to use a tax collector and says, you're no better than the tax collectors, that was a direct insult and look at the point there if we only love people that we can get something that's what he's basically saying he said if you're only loving and doing things for people who can love you and do something back for you where is that different than the world because he said you're like your father in heaven but this is what the world does the world loves people and does things for people that can do something back for them what makes us different is we have the ability to love people that don't do anything back for us. We have the ability not only to love somebody that won't love us back, but we have the ability to love somebody that hates us. I told you the story last week, I think it was, of, of, of David Wilkerson. He was a pastor that God sent to the New York City, and he got down in the streets with the gangs, and he just was not received right away. 
And one of the gang leaders was a man named Nicky Cruz. And David Wilkerson just kept coming to him and loving him and loving him and loving him. And he, Nicky Cruz got so angry at one point, he pulled out a knife and said, if you say Jesus to me one more time, I'm going to cut you up into little pieces. And David Wilkerson looked back with him and said, and if you do, every piece you cut up is going to cry out that I love you. He couldn't handle that kind of love. He'd never experienced that kind of love because the love on the streets was not like that. But see, the love on the streets is really no different than the love out here. It's just not dressed the same. It's still selfish. I'll go back to you what you do to me. We're just more sophisticated at it. But it's the same thing. Then how is the church any different than the world if we just use the world's type of love. That's why this building's not filled today. Three services. I'm glad, too. <laughs> That's why people aren't standing in line to get in here. Because they don't see a difference in us from what they see out there. Is it because they don't need love? Oh, no. They desperately need love. It's because they don't see it in the church. There's a book I read a couple of times, a, once, at least once a year, called What's So Amazing by Grace by Philip Yancey. And it starts with a story about a, a young girl who I think used to go to church. I've forgotten the back. It's been a while. And, and she's become a prostitute to support herself. I mean, her life is a disaster. And she's in trouble. And he says, well, you know, why won't you go to church? to get help, she says, that's the last place I'd go. Why is the church the last place a hurting person would turn? A person that needs love and healing, it's because they don't see it. And the reason they don't see it is they don't see us living it. Oh, we love each other, but do we love them? Do we love them? I'm talking to me as much as you. I believe with all my heart that the Spirit of God is speaking to Faith Christian Center. I've never felt more clear or stronger about anything that I've ever preached that it was God speaking to us at this time. Let's go over to um, Romans chapter 12. we're familiar with Romans chapter 12. It talks about being transformed by the renewing of our mind. But we're going to go down and we're going to look at um, well, just for the sake of time, go to verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. The marriage seminar we did back in um, early November, I think it was, we had some questions at the end, and somebody asked a question, you know, what do you do when your spouse just keeps after you to start a fight? And my answer was, I've never yet seen a fight without two people involved. If you just stand there and keep your mouth shut, the fight won't last long. 
fire will die out when the fuel's burned up. In order to keep a fire going, you've got to keep putting wood on the fire. And that wood is, oh, yeah? Well, you said this. Well, what about that? You know, our instinct is when one person says something to us and it may hurt. Of course, it may hurt because it's convicting. But anyway, it hurts. Our thinking is to find something to hurt them back with. All right, I may have done this to you, but let me think if I can find something you did to hurt me. It's to strike back. That's putting fuel on the fire. And Paul's saying, as, 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 as far as you have the ability, as far as you have the ability, live peaceably with all men. Not all men may live peaceably with you, but from your side, this is what your responsibility is. Look at it, because it gets stronger. Verse 19. Beloved, so he's talking to Christians, do not avenge yourself. That means somebody's done something hurtful to you. Do not avenge yourself. Give place to wrath. In other words, let, don't, don't let wrath control you. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. That's not what you feel like doing. Oh, yeah, I'll feed him, but I'm going to put a little arsenic in there. <laughs> it's like that great line in, in the play last night where they say, you know, one of the workers says, you know, if I were married to Crocus, you know, I'd put poison in his coffee. And another one says, if I were married to Crocus, I'd put poison in my coffee. <laughs> yeah, I'll feed him all right. If he's thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. This is the verse. Do not be overcome by evil. Understand this. When somebody does something to you and you choose to do it back, you've entered in to their sin. You have entered in to their sin. And you have lost your righteous standing. I don't mean God's, you've not saved. I don't mean that. But you're, you're no longer standing on righteousness, on right ground. You've now gone down, with the expression we use, you've gone down to their level. But you've entered into their sin. And when you do that, God is, can now is not able to come and get involved to protect you. Why? Because we've already seen what is God. You ought to know by now, God is love. So you can't have God involved in delivering you and leave the love over there. God says, I'm going to get back at them for you. But he's left the love over there. Can't do that because the love has to go with him wherever he goes because he is love. But notice this. The word of God's telling us we can overcome evil. I want to let that sink in. Because that's what verse 21 says. Do not over, be overcome by evil. That means even though there's evil all around us, it does not have to overcome us. Oh, this answers something. Thank you, Lord. What's, what's down inside of me is the reason this is so important is because God has placed us here at a time of darkness. 
If you notice things are getting darker in the world, if not, just open your eyes. They're not getting lighter, they're getting darker. Evil is rising up and getting stronger. The devil's got a boldness. There's a boldness now where he can move through people to say and do things publicly they never would have said and done publicly 10 years ago. He's getting bolder. Why? Because he's lowered the standards. So people don't see it's the devil now. They just think it's the normal, natural way. And I don't know about you, but I've had days when I'm like, God, I'd just rather not be here. I'd rather go home with you. I don't want to be around all this dirty stuff out there. You get tired of hearing, you know, all the stuff that goes on. And then it happens in the church. And I don't mean just here. I hear stories and it's like, oh, I don't want to know. I don't want to know that stuff. It's just the devil working. Well, we live in an evil age, an evil time. And we can feel like, oh my goodness, it's crowding in on us. It's going to overcome us. Then God, why did you leave us here? Because he left us here because he wants to overcome the evil. So this verse tells me that God's purpose and his plan is that we can overcome the evil that's in the world. But we're not going to cover, listen carefully, we're not going to overcome the evil in the world with our political programs. And I'm not saying it's wrong to stand up and speak out for what's right. I don't mean that. But understand that that's not going to overcome it. What's going to overcome evil is exactly what he says here. Do not be overcome by evil. That means it's possible, in fact, the church is called to not be overcome by evil. Instead, we are called to overcome the evil. But the problem is, we try to overcome the evil with our flesh. Because we see something we know is wrong, and it's unjust, and we get angry, and we want to do something about it. But why does that make us any different in the world? We're just reacting. That was terrible what they did. They ought to be killed. That's what the world thinks. But how are we to do that? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome by evil. How? By good. By good. Isn't that what Jesus did? I mean, he's submitted himself into the hands of Roman soldiers to beat him senseless, who mocked him because he was a king. They made a crown for him all right, but it was a crown of thorns and they shoved it on his head. It was not little rosebush thorns. These were long thorns like that. They mocked him and put a robe around him and they mockingly bowed down before him, who really was the king of kings. But they didn't know that. They dragged him out there, nailed him to that cross and mocked him on that cross. And he was doing that for them. He overcame their evil with his sacrifice of love. But I got to warn you, it's not your instinct. It's not what you want to do. Not what our flesh wants to do. Our flesh wants revenge. It wants what's right. They need to get their due. One of the most amazing men in the Old Testament, 
I think one of the greatest leaders is Moses. There's a point where Moses has been leading the people. God has performed miracles from them. They've been supernaturally delivered. We've talked about the story. And they're out there in the wilderness. And Moses has a brother and a sister. It's amazing how it often comes from those closest to you. Aaron was his brother. Aaron was the second one in charge. And Miriam was their sister. And Miriam and Aaron start looking at themselves. Isn't that interesting? Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And they begin to look at Moses and say, well, God uses him powerfully, but we're prophets. How come he gets this honor that God honors him? And we don't get the recognition that we deserved. And they're talking in the tent about this. And God hears them. And God does hear your conversations. He, he hears your conversations. He's listening in. There's somebody always listening. And Moses comes to the outside of the tent. And it's interesting, Moses, in the story, never defends himself. God defends him. And God speaks. God comes down outside their tent and says, uh, uh, Miriam, Aaron, come out here a minute. I want to talk to you. And in essence, says, this is the man I've called. And Miriam becomes leprous because of her envy and jealousy, and she spoke against the man God had put there. Moses never defended himself. Moses' heart was this. When she becomes leprous, Moses now intercedes for her. The man that she was jealous of and envious of and trying to hurt is now praying for her recovery pleading for mercy for her. But see, he had come to know his God, to know his God, overcome evil with good. Now, I, I've got to be very frank with you. This sounds overwhelming. How are we going to do that? I mean, if you take an honest look at yourself this morning, and if you think you're really good, then you're really in trouble. Take an honest look at ourselves and say, that's not easy. What you're requiring is not easy. Well, turn with me to 1 John chapter 5. First John is so rich in this. Well, let's start in verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus the Christ is born of God, whoever loves Him who is begotten, who begot also loves Him who is begotten of Him. In other words, if you love God who begots, you'll love the, those that He has begotten, which is us. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. Doesn't feel that way. Somebody says something to you, somebody you find out somebody despitefully uses you, 
You get a nasty letter. You find people at work have been talking about you. And it's one thing if they're right. It's another thing when you've done what's right and now they're really after you and they're persecuting you. There was a, a bishop a number of years ago that was being interviewed um, by, I don't remember who, but by the press, and, and they asked him, you know, uh, about his ministry and, and how he, you know, thought things were going. And he said, and I don't remember all the story, but this is the line, I re- the, the, the statement he made that I remembered. He said, what troubles me when I read the book of Acts, he said, because everywhere the apostle Paul went, they persecuted him. Everywhere I go, they serve me tea. Now, tea's nice, or coffee, I'd rather coffee, but tea's nice. But he began to wonder, why? Why? But Paul overcame the evil with good. But the Word of God says that this commandment to walk in this kind of love is not burdensome. Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. That doesn't mean it's easy. This is the answer I was looking for. It doesn't mean it's easy. It's hard to walk in this kind of love, but it's hard on your flesh. The only part of you it's hard on is the part of you that needs to die. The only part that is the part that's got to go. It's your flesh. It's not burdensome on the real you, which is the spirit man inside. Why is it not burdensome? It's according to your nature. It's not burdensome to act according to your nature. It's just burdensome on your flesh. So every time you rear up, every time there's a party, that's your flesh sticking out. And it needs to die. It needs to die. So we're going to talk about now how to do that. We're going to about how can I do this? How can I walk in this kind of love? How can I do that? Well, you need some understanding first. So the first thing we understand is it's not burdensome. It's only burdensome to our flesh. So the part of you that's it's hard to do, part of you where it's hard to do is the part that's got to go. That may be why that person is sitting next to you at work. Years ago, there was somebody that I had an occasion to, to work with periodically. And I, they just had an ability to rub me the wrong way. And that's not easy. I'm reasonably easygoing. <laughs> she wasn't looking. <laughs> I said reasonably. I qualified it there. <laughs> Now, I don't flare up. I don't get, I'm not touchy that way very easily. But this person had a way of just. And I began to pray about it. And the Lord asked me, why do they upset you so much? And I began to realize it revealed things in me I didn't want to look at. Remember earlier in Matthew, Jesus talks about, you know, why are you trying to take the splinter out of your neighbor's eye? when there's a beam in your eye? Do you ever think about it, that a splinter and a beam are made out of the same material? They're both wood. 
that means what's in their eye is also in my eye. And I got more of it in my eye probably than they have it in theirs. The reason I can recognize the wood that's in their eye is because I'm looking through wood. The reason that bothers me in you is because it's revealing the same thing in me. Because I began to notice not everything everybody did irritated me. It was only a few things. So I began to think, well, why is this only this thing that irritates me and not that? And I began to realize maybe when I saw that scripture, there's some of that in me. And as I began to look, when I'd see that really, you know, why that person's doing, why? I began to look in me and say, oh my goodness, it's in me too. So I learned this principle. Whatever irritates me about somebody else most likely is in me. Now what Jesus says about that is you're not qualified to remove a splinter in your brother's eye because you can't see well and accurate. Oh, Lord, thank you. Because if that thing is in your heart, it's going to affect what you say and what you do towards them. I want to go over that. This is off, way off our, my, my, the notes for this morning, but that really believes is what God wants us to settle down. This is where we live. Imagine, because I, I had this happen a few years ago. I got something in my eye. It was like a cat hair. It got in my eye. And, and, and you never know. When you get something in your eye, this tiny little thing can become so irritating. So I went to the eye doctor, and he looked in there, and he says, it's a cat hair. Here's what I'm going to have to do. And I said, I'm going to have to roll your eyelid up. Well, he said, but I'm going to put something in there, and you won't notice. And it didn't. I didn't even know what he was doing. But imagine if I sat back in the chair, and the ophthalmologist said, I'm going to have to remove this cat hair out of your eye. And I came, and he had hair flowing out of his eyes, and he had to move it aside like this to try to, just a minute, John, just lie there a second. I got to hold this hair out of my eye so I can look in there to get the, excuse me, it's getting in my way. I would have been out of that chair so fast. I mean, it took every amount of discipline I had to stay in the chair when the guy says, and I'm going to put this in your eye and take it out. Oh, yeah? (laughs) I had to trust him and his hand and his high sight. But imagine if there was, his eyes were so full of hair sticking out that he couldn't see straight to take the hair out of my eye. That's Jesus' point. Because if you've got that same attitude in you, which has caused you to recognize it in your neighbor, that means your motive, ooh, your motive for, for pointing that splitter out to them is not love. Oh, we can couch it that way. We can pray, oh, I've got to pray for you because you've got a pride problem. I got to pray for you because you got this real problem with, you know, you're irritable. You're irritable. (laughs) (laughs) And so what happens is everything you do has its origin in your heart. That's why Proverbs says, watch over your heart with all diligence because out of it flow all the issues of life. This is why what God is so concerned about is the condition of your heart. 
and not the condition of your pump that's in your body, but the attitudes that are in your heart. Because if they're not this kind of love, then they're harmful. They're destructive. In fact, what we learned earlier in our study, if it's not this kind of love, then we are going to be, whatever we do, is going to be furthering the kingdom of Satan. So when we go to correct our brother, I've got to be careful of this as a pastor. I've got to be careful of this when I come and stand up here. This is why James says, be very careful if you're a teacher because there's a greater standard of judgment. Why? Because if my heart is off track, then it's going to affect the word. That's, I can be preaching this word, you know, sweating and spitting and jumping up and down with all the passion that I have in me, and it can be the word of God. But if it's coming out of a heart that's got envy and jealousy and strife in it, then that somehow is going to get passed on. I cannot, I've told people, something comes up, some issues come up to try to get me mad. I said, I cannot, I cannot afford to get in strife. I cannot afford it, not just for my own health and my family, because it will affect many people. That's why Hebrews says, be careful, because if you don't deal with certain things, a root of bitterness will get formed down inside of you. And because of that root of bitterness, it says many will be defiled. The condition of your heart is critical. And so Jesus is saying here that if you've got the same thing in your heart that they've got in theirs, when you go to deal with it in theirs, it's not going to be motivated by love. It's going to be motivated by somehow to point your finger at them to keep their eyes off of you. All right, now how are we going to do this? How do we do this? All right, let's go over to John chapter, no, 1 John chapter 4. So it's just next door, next verse, next chapter back. Start in verse 9. In this the love of God was manifested towards us, that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that he might, we might live through Him. In this is love, and this is what I want you to see, not that we loved God, but that He loved for us, and sent His Son to be the propitiation of our sins. In other words, what he's saying here is the source of love that we have is not because we chose to love God. It's because God, first of all, chose to love us. This type of love has its beginnings and its source in the love that God has given to us. In, in um, Matthew chapter 10, it is, when Jesus is sending his 12 disciples out, he says this phrase, this is so important. He says, freely you have received, freely give. You can't give something you haven't received yet. And so the origin of this love, this ability to love people that hate you, the ability to love people that are despitefully using you, the ability to love people that, that, that I mean, they're angry. They want to kill you. They want to destroy you. The ability to love them and not be moved yourself, that ability to love comes from God. Because he first of all loved you and me that way. Then the next verse goes on to say, verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to also love one another. So the principle is this. We cannot of our own stir this up. It has to come from God. But the point is, it has come. 
Turn with me to John chapter 4. I've never seen this in here before. This is one of my favorite chapters. The story of Jesus meeting the woman at the well. Most of you are familiar with the story. They're on their way. Let's see. I forgot. They're on their way from... Uh, they're going through Samaria. They've left Judea, which is south, and they're going north back home up to Galilee, and they've got to pass through Samaria. Now, you've got to understand, understand the story that the Samaritans were hated by the Jews. And I don't want to give you the whole historical background, but they were considered by the Jews to be half-breeds because back a number of generations earlier, they had intermarried with the Assyrians. So they were not pure Jews, but they were partial Jews. So they hated each other. It was a racial, it was a racial issue, essentially. And they're walking through Samaria to go back home up to Galilee, and they stop for a break by a well that was dug by Jacob generations earlier. And the disciples go into the city of Samaria to buy some food. And Jesus is sitting there by the well resting. And a Samaritan woman comes up to draw water. And Jesus asks her for a drink of water. And look at verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you know the gift of God and who it is that says to you, Give me drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Well, that got her curiosity. The woman said to him, Sir, if you have, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep, where do you get living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water, this natural water that comes out of Jacob's well, will, will thirst again. Verse 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a fountain of water springing up to everlasting life. I've never read this verse the way I saw it yesterday. I mean, what I'm going to say to you now, I have seen. And that's that what is a well? In other words, he's not saying, I'm going to give you a drink of water and you'll never be thirsty again. This is a magic glass of water that once you drink this water, this particular drink of water will satisfy your thirst for all time. He's not saying that. What he's saying is, if you'll come to me, I will put in you something that is a source of that satisfying water that will be available to you to spring up inside of you every time you need it. See the difference? So it's not, I, mean, I don't know, I never, somebody never caught that before. But it is, it, it is, it's not one drink and you're satisfied forever. It's that it is the source of it. I'm not going to give you, you know, 14 containers of water that will last you for the rest of your life. I'm going to give you the source of that water that satisfies. You see the difference? And when you, so that when you draw of it, it will be a fountain of water springing up to everlasting or eternal life. Now, eternal life does mean living forever, but it means so much more than that. The word everlasting in Greek is ionis, which means perpetual, never-ending. 
and the word life there, there are two basic Greek words for life that are used in the New Testament. There's bios, which refers to natural life. That's life we just consider, the physical life of your body. It refers to just life itself, what we normally consider life. But the other word is the word zoe, Z-O-E, which means a different quality of life. And in essence, it means life the way God lives it. Life lived at God's level. Perpetual life at the level that God lives it. And Jesus is saying, if you will come to me, I will give you a gift that will be the source of this kind of life coming up out of you. This type of life, and we'll talk more about this in, in, in a few weeks, this type of life is not a, not, a higher, it's not a better quality of life. It's a totally different type of life. It's life at the level that God lives it. At that level, there's no lack. At that level, there's no fear. 1 John 4 says, this kind of love casts out fear. This is, this is life at the level Jesus lived it. It's, as I explained it, I, mean, I forget where I was. Maybe it was to you. It may have been to my wife. I don't remember what I was talking about. I still remember the first time I got on an airplane in a tor- terrible storm. And we took off. It was a cloudy, rainy day. We took off, and, we, and we go, you go up through the clouds, you know, and the plane's going like this as you go through the clouds, you know, and the, and the trays are going up and down like this, you know. And, and, you go, and then you burst through, and you get up above the clouds, and there's peace and calm, and the sun's out. It's flying at another level in another environment. There is available to the church. There is available to you and me today a level of life, which is the level where God lives it, where there's no fear, there's perfect peace, there's joy, and it is not at all dependent on what's going on around you because it is a fountain of life. The source of this life is inside of you. And because it's inside of you, no one can take it away. And this life is love. This life is love. This is why how we can overcome evil with good because this good is this walk of love. And because love is God, what we're saying is we overcome evil with God. But where do we get God to come down and overcome this evil? How do we get God to come down and overcome this evil that's come against us? I'm going to tell you a secret. Don't tell anybody. He's already come. Well, where is he? He's in you. Go to Romans chapter 5.
I love this when, when, <laughs> when, I, when, I, when God's teaching me while I'm teaching you. Romans chapter 5. I'm going to go back to the beginning of the chapter because it sets the tone here. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God or the revealing of the glory of God. Not only that, this is where it gets a little strange, we also glory in our tribulations. How would we do that? That's evil, right? Knowing that tribulation or evil produces perseverance or steadfastness. Some translations will say patience, but the word means perseverance. We talked about that before, not being moved no matter what happens. And perseverance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. Understand this, hope in the New Testament does not mean hope the way we usually use it, which is, I hope so. No, this means a confident, steadfast assurance that something's going to happen. So what he's saying here is that in tribulation, he says, I rejoice in tribulation because I understand that tribulation isn't going to touch me. Tribulation instead is going to produce in me a steadfastness. And that steadfastness is going to produce in me a developed character. And that developed character is going to produce in me hope, a confident, steadfast assurance that nothing can move. That's why Paul says in Philippians chapter 4 that, 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 um, that, that uh, I've, I've learned that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And here's the key, verse 5. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out, has been, past tense, poured out, to, out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. When you were born again, we've talked about this before, the way you became born again is you called upon God, you called upon Christ, and when you called upon Christ, God sent His own Spirit. There's only one Holy Spirit. God sent His own Spirit and He breathed Him into you. And you were born again of God's nature. Just as your physical body is the result of the the seed of your father going into your mother's womb and joining together, and out of that your physical body was birthed, was born, was created, and then was born. In the same way, God put His Spirit inside of you to birth in you His nature. That's why in Matthew chapter 5 it says that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. John chapter 1 says that, that, that He came unto His own as many received Him. He gave to them the right or the privilege to become sons of God, born not of the will of men or of the flesh, but born of, and the Greek word thereof means out of God. So that's how you became a child of God. You literally have been born out of God. The term born again in John chapter 3 means also born from above. So it shouldn't be shocking that we have His nature, just like it shouldn't be shocking that you have your parents' nature and your physical appearance. It's not shocking that you look like your parents, is it? It would be shocking if you didn't. So in the same way, it's not shocking that I find the older I get, the more I look like my father. It shouldn't be shocking that the older I get spiritually, hopefully, the more I begin to act like my heavenly father 
because I have His nature in me. And so this verse tells us the same thing that John 4.13 tells us, that Jesus, that was, this is the answer to that prayer. It says, if you come and ask of me, I will give you a living water that will become in you a well of living water rising up, springing up unto this eternal life, this life the way God lives it. John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says, Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you may have life, and that life more abundantly. That's the same Greek word. He's saying, I've come that you may have a level of life that's so far above every level that the world lives because it's the level where God lives, and I have come that you might have that here in this world. And so the reason that when someone spitefully uses me, the reason that I can pray for them, the reason that when somebody slaps my cheek or attacks me, I don't have to attack back, but instead I can pray for them and do good for them, the reason is because that nature that my Father has is in me by the Holy Spirit. See, God would not require something of you without giving you the ability to do it. Then how come it's so hard? Because we have to fight through our flesh to do what we know in our heart is right. That shows us how dominated we still are by our flesh. It's interesting because in Luke chapter 4, I think it is, right after Jesus has been filled with the Holy Spirit, the very first thing the Holy Spirit leads him to do is a very strange thing. It says he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted or tested by the devil. And Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and when he became hungry, then the devil appeared to him. And he tempted him in three different ways. We're not going to go through that. But I believe with all my heart that the reason the Spirit of God led him to be tempted was because God the Son had never worn flesh before. Never had to deal with temptation before. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that he was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. But God the Father, when, when Jesus was still the second person of the Godhead before he was born in Nazareth, he didn't know what temptation was like because temptation only comes through your flesh. And he didn't wear flesh. But now that he has flesh on, notice he didn't go deal with it until he was filled with the Spirit. Now that he's filled with the Spirit, now he has to test out this flesh. And he has to learn to overcome his flesh. Jesus had to learn to overcome his flesh. Hebrews chapter uh, 5, I think it is verse 7, somewhere in there, it says that he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. He learned it. He didn't sin, but he didn't get a free pass. He had to learn to control this flesh and put this flesh under so that as he was being attacked, as he was being tempted throughout the time of his public ministry, as he was going through that time, he already had learned to keep his flesh under. So when he, I mean, you realize he's living for all this time as a, knowing that he's got a traitor on his staff. He loved him. He fed him. He provided for him. He didn't treat him any differently knowing 
that he was a traitor on his staff. He didn't react to him. He loved him. Because he had his flesh under control. This is why Paul says in Romans 9, chapter, chapter 9, verse 27, Therefore I beat my flesh and keep it under submission, lest having preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. It's our flesh that gives us trouble. But understand this, you're not dealing with your flesh in your own strength. You've got the life of God inside of you to stand up inside of you and strengthen you to do what it is you don't want to do. So it all starts with an act of your will. I've already said to you that love is a decision. It's an act of your will. So you get in that situation, somebody says something to you, does something to you, you know, and your flesh, you want to give them that peace of mind you can't, peace of your mind you can't spare because you've given too many other pieces away. You want to just tell, you want to put them in their place. You need to check yourself and say, what would God do in this situation? I, what I do is this, I say to myself, you represent God here. You are God's representative in this situation. You can't just do what you want to do. So you've got to find out what God would say. Well, I don't know what God would say. Then I'll, here's what you do. When in doubt, don't. When you don't want, know what to say, there may be a reason why you don't know what to say. We don't always have to answer everything. Jesus stood before Pilate and didn't answer them. They made all kinds of accusations against him, asked him questions. He just stood there and did not defend himself. The only time he opened his mouth was to defend his father when Pilate says, don't you know I have the authority to put you to death? And Jesus says, no, you don't have any authority my father didn't give you. The life of God, eternal life, life more abundantly. This is where the church is called to live. Why? Because we're his body and he is this kind of love. If we function and do all kinds of good things, but we don't do it out of this kind of love, we fail because we're not representing him we're representing ourselves. And we can get proud. Look at the good works we've accomplished. Look at what we've done. Look at all we've done. And isn't that exactly what Lucifer did? He says, wow, you know, I'm something else. Look at these beautiful clothes I have. Of course, he forgot where they came from. See, that's why Jesus said, no, no, he's the source of my goodness. He's the source of my goodness. The wonderful thing about this is every one of us is going to have homework this week. Every one of you is going to have an opportunity, probably more than one, to choose to walk in this kind of love. And here's what I want you to do. When you recognize that situation, when you find that your reaction is rising up in you and you want to say, it can't even be just what you think, not what you do. It's rising up in you. Stop and ask yourself this question. Say this to yourself. I represent the Lord Jesus Christ 
in this situation? What would he do? Because you are the son of the living God in that situation. We are called to overcome evil, not by our programs, not by our political efforts, although they're okay, but ultimately, the problem is not politics. Ultimately, the pro- the, the, this world's not going to get changed through legislation because legislation does not deal with the heart. People hurt each other, take advantage of each other. Racism is not a political issue. It's a heart issue. It is a heart issue. It is a heart issue. And therefore, it has to be addressed in the heart. And the only way it can be addressed is for a heart to change. And the only thing that can change a heart is the love of God. And that's how we overcome evil with good. Because love never fails.